Looking for a great new thriller? Check out Conundrum Publishing. We publish books that make you think. From mind-bending thrillers to heart-wrenching dramatic action-adventure novels, our books will keep you up all night, turning the pages eager to find out what happens next. So, what are you waiting for? Head over to conundrumpub.com str for three totally free thrillers. You won't be disappointed. Again, three full-length action thrillers totally free at conundrumpub.com str. somehow ended up listening to the stuff that's real that you didn't know was real but also is cool podcast or sturdy dick were bayek or uh never mind and with that out of the way we welcome you back ladies and gentlemen to stuff that's real that you didn't know was real but also is cool Kevin is losing his mind over there. I think you should totally that. leave that. You're, you're, you're goofing. <laughs> Maybe we will. Maybe it'll I be like a little twofer, a double intro. That happened. Yeah. So we had to re- redo it. You know, it happens, guys. It happens. If you got a, you got a podcast and you know what's up. But sometimes, believe it or not, you have to do retakes and things like that. But, but most of the time we're perfect. Most of the time we are absolutely wonderful in every way. Uh, at the very least, we're both looking pretty great today. Wouldn't you say, Kevin? Yeah. I think we're on our best game visibly it's a shame this podcast isn't video at this point you guys would be (laughs) (laughs) why don't we have a water right here we should have we should cap we we do go through the effort of actually capturing video and everything so this is maybe we should put it to work i am i'm just going to warn you right now i've had my internet connection drop out twice in the past minute it should be fun maybe i'll disappear maybe i won't let's see Uh, well, we've Let's paused all dice. the uh, all the syncing and, and the drop boxes and everything on this end. So, every possible thing I can do to to make this show the best thing you'll ever experience this week, or at least today, or at least within the next half hour, we've done. So, hold on to your butts, everyone. Uh, we are we're coming in hot. And Kevin, I think yes. you should start us off this week with something okay. exciting. Something I don't have a segue. Yeah, I'll let you do it. It's fine. Something crispy. Actually, Ooh. something spiteful. My story is about okay. spite. I like. That. Okay, you ready? This is a fa- a favorite of mine. Actually, going way back. Glad to have a venue to talk about it. Although this story is actually the story itself that I'm drawing from is actually pretty recent. I remember hearing about this years and years ago. It's it's one of those things that I kind of trot out in conversation sometimes because people need to know, need to hear. But we're going to talk about the origins of the potato chip yes we are <laughs> which is something i think everyone you know it's got different names across the globe but i think everyone's kind of can we just uh, not call them crisps anymore they're not, i just they're not British crisps, people. you need to get yeah. over it it's just it's an american chip. invention so we get to tell you what it's called that's the well, that's the i'll go even a step further here you guys invented the language thank you for that we fixed it yeah. just pronounce it the way we pronounce we up, it we upgraded just it. get rid of yeah. the used in the word color and flavor and so they're not freaking use. potato crisps. I mean, Jesus, come on. Potato crisps. And that's such an awkward thing to say, crisps. That's an awkward phrasing to me. And, and forget about all the people that can't pronounce the word, the letter S, right? There's yeah. people with lisp, you know, they, which, by the way, I think is an ironic thing to have an S in the word lisp. But whatever, I yes. digress. The challenge is language. 
all that said, let's get we'll, we'll, we'll shake that off. But so here's the deal: the potato chip has really some clouded origins. There's not there's no single agreed upon origin for the potato chip. But the one that gets the most play, the one that that most people refer to, most people think of as the de facto origin of the potato chip, actually started with a man named George Crumb, who was born George Speck, and he was a 19th century chef of native and Amer- African-American descent who made his name at Moon's Lake House in the resort town of Saratoga Springs, New York. Now, that's background. So this guy was working as a chef and at a resort, and in comes shipping magnate Cornelius Vanderbilt. And you have likely heard that name, but this was back in 1853, and Vanderbilt is known historically to be a kind of eccentric in many respects and apparently a fussy eater uh, because he ordered fried potatoes, which were a thing at that point. But when he got them, he sent them back because, as he said, they were too thick. So out of spite and as a, quote, practical joke, Crumb, George Crumb, sliced like paper-thin potatoes, fried them up and made them crispy, and sent them out and then waited to hear the to get uh, fired i'm sure yeah. get, it probably was <laughs> and who knows you know who knows what the consequences might have been but apparently he felt you know how chefs are you <laughs> yeah, know exactly imagine yeah, yeah. ramsey and uh, you've probably got a decent idea this guy probably had enough of a uh enough clout that he probably didn't suspect that he would be fired over it or anything and I imagine um, because he's working, he's not, this isn't some like podunk little, you know, backwater. No. If Vanderbilt is eating at your restaurant, it's probably a pretty high end. Moon's Lake House in Saratoga Springs was one of those destinations. Colorado Springs has the Broadmoor Hotel. Yeah. Or you know, it was a yeah. This is fancy schmancy stuff. So right. Right. he sends this back to him expecting it to be rejected. But as fate would have it, Vanderbilt loved it and not only loved it, but raved about it. And soon enough, it became... A, a reason for people to visit Moon's house and order this special treat. This It became a hit, and then it sort of took over, right? It became well-known, and Crumb in, eventually opened his own restaurant and uh, called Crumb's House or Crumb's Place. Both of those names were applied to it, and, and he would serve uh, baskets of potato chips on every table. So it became a staple of his restaurant. He became known for it. And he ended up with lots of accolades. Like he, the New York Herald called him the best cook in America. Out of three of them? Like, yeah. The <laughs> best cook. I mean, out of all five cooks in the United all States. all five cooks, because they all live in New York. You know, there's no other. Yeah. <laughs> American Heritage Magazine called him the Edison of Greece. So he was a big deal, right? Now, fast forward to today. And of course, Billions, this is this article says that Americans alone consume 1.85 billion pounds of potato chips every year. That's crazy. And that's around 6.6 pounds per person. I personally, I skipped potato chips for a long time, but since we've moved into this house, I've discovered these sweet onion flavored potato chips that HEV sells. Ooh. And so I am probably personally responsible for 1.7 billion pounds of those Probably. chips and you got to keep in mind dear listener this is pounds of potato chips so we've yeah. already extracted most of the water from the potato most of the weight is gone yeah so it's not 1.85 billion pounds of potatoes it's no. just the chip 
just the chips. Incredible. Yeah. That's crazy. It's a lot of mouth. dehydrated flake of potato. Now, almost as much as I can bench. That all that stuff is true or real. Okay. Real. All yeah. of that stuff is real, but there's a point of contention, and that is the origin of the potato chip is still in question because what? even though Crumb is kind of credited as the guy who popularized potato chips. There are a lot of side stories in this that indicate that potentially it was invented much earlier. So there's a, for example, a a woman named Eliza, who was also a cook in Saratoga Springs, who was heralded by the is it the New York Herald? The New York Herald called her out as having a potato frying reputation and had become one of the prominent matters of remark at Saratoga. So she may have been the one who invented the potato chip. Seems um, strange that they both happened in Saratoga Springs. In Saratoga Springs, right. Spring. Yeah. And, you know, as I said, George Crumb was of Native American and African American descent. You know, there's some, it's an interesting sort of quirk of fate, I guess, or quirk of history that you've got two people who are in sort of marginalized um, groups who are noteworthy and praised over this and are both kind of vying for, you know, the right to be called the creator, right? Um, but there are other stories. There's lots of other stories. And, of course, the idea of frying a potato, that's been around for centuries. That's Well, that's what I was going to ask. I mean, yeah. surely, I mean, surely the Irish figured it out. I mean, yeah. they don't have but flavor it, afterwards because all their food is bland and <laughs> disgusting but you know sorry irish people i imagine i mean the idea is you know this the thin shaved crispy fried thing right that so that's that was the point but who knows um there was a also an english doctor in 1817 named william kitchener who published the cook's oracle which was a cookbook that included a recipe for potatoes fried in slices or shavings hmm. so you that's really are not going to know for certain who invented what we think of as the modern day potato chip, but it could be somebody like in Germany, you know, who's uh, making a schnitzel, which is, you know, it's a real thin sliced chicken yep. and throw something in. Okay. Well, let's throw these, you know, even if they were just the shavings from the potato skins, yeah. fried potato skins or something, you know, that could be, if someone is slicing up potatoes to fry and you know, they get a little close to the end or something and they start shaving little bits off you might have discovered they might have discovered it by accident sort of the way like i used to make homemade french fries you know oh, as yeah. you chop up a potato and you get to a certain point you might end up with potato some bits are thinner and some bits are thicker right yeah well i mean it wouldn't take much of a leap to realize oh when the when they're thin they get crispy and i like that so i have a, a theory that the potato chip was probably around for a long time but certainly Crumb was the one who popularized it. Exactly. I mean, you know, we weren't, you know, we didn't own restaurants putting bowls of potato chips on each table invitingly, as the article says. Right. Which I think is cool. I, I didn't know that. So that may be the first time that chips were on the table. Because I don't know the, the history of a Mexican restaurant tradition, especially in Texas. I mean, this is yeah. one thing we we complain about, my wife and I, here in Colorado Springs. And I grew up in San Antonio, which is Mexico, actually. Yeah. Nobody <laughs> knows that, but it is. A little Mexico. Um, yeah. It is uh, no, it's actually more Mexican than Mexico. I've, I've lived in Mexico as well, and then I was like, "There's more Texans in Mexico than there are." Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, the point is, you know, every if you have a Mexican restaurant in Texas, and sometimes even just like an American restaurant, like a Chili's <laughs> or Applebee's, you must—it's a requirement by de facto law—to yeah. put a bowl of tortilla chips with salsa on the table. Yeah, uh, in Colorado Springs, 
that shit's seven bucks. Yeah, you gotta pay it's extra. Yeah, it's like it's absolutely absurd yeah. to me. Kara and I, after traveling the country, <laughs> great came to greatly appreciate the Texas tradition of corn chips and salsa uh -huh. on every table, no matter what. In restaurants, you wouldn't even. I mean, there aren't even Tex-Mex. Like you just. Go right. into any given restaurant, you know. Yeah, it's, I'm in. Here's uh, this German restaurant, and oh, uh, hey, here's your chips and queso, oh, yep. your chips and salsa. Chinese restaurant. <laughs> and there's a lot. This article goes into a lot of interesting details about the potato chip, and I won't go through all of it because you can go read it yourself. Uh, yeah, I do I'll recommend it. It's on the Smithsonian Magazine website. But I did want to cover this because there's a, there's a paragraph here that has a couple of interesting points. And then we can move on. But it says it would take another bold innovator to, to ignite the revolution, the result of which no birthday party or football game or trip to the office vending machine would ever be the same. In 1926, Laura Scudder, a California businesswoman, began packaging chips in wax paper bags that included not only a freshness date, but also a tempting boast, the noisiest chips in the world. Ooh. So that is hailed as, uh, as they put it, a, a peculiar, peculiarly, I can't even say it, <laughs> American marketing breakthrough, you know, and if you, th that's something that is noteworthy in and of itself, because yeah. marketing is such an interesting thing to study historically, but you know, when it comes to something like a potato chip, there's certain aspects of potato chips that we just take for granted now, right? right? There was a series of commercials. This article actually talks about it with the guy who played the cowardly lion in mm -hmm. The Wizard of Oz was a spokesperson for, a, a, I think, Lay's potato chips. And he played a couple of different characters, but one of the characters was the devil. And that he, it, that's the origin of that tagline, you can't eat just one. Oh. Right? So... He was so the cowardly lion as the devil was tempting people with Lay's potato chips, oh, okay. saying, Bet you can't eat just one. So that's where that comes from. But the other, the thing I wanted to call out, the last bit I want to call out was that let's see, it says that there was a one particular fan of potato chips, allegedly, was Al Capone. Hmm. It says he, he allegedly discovered a love for potato chips on a visit to Saratoga. There we are again. And thought they would sell well in his speakeasies. Nice. <laughs> so people who were, you know, dodging around prohibition and sneaking into these gin joints were enjoying potato chips early on in American history. So that's it, cool, man. Yeah. Prohibition needs to be an episode. We should get there's so much to cover in prohibition. That's what I mean. Yeah, we'd we have to do it over a series of episodes. Where, yeah, yeah, because it's so fascinating to me how, um, you know, you, there's the ju the juxtaposition of it, right? You know, I brewed beer for a minute, and you know, I was I learned a whole lot. I love history more than I like brewing beer. Uh, I like drinking beer and reading about beer history, is what I should yeah. say. Yeah, and you know, there were all these craft is what we call them now, but all these different styles of beer from around the world existed in America, just like they existed in Germany and, and Austria, and you know, whoever wherever else you are. Uh, the salty, gross beers of, of London, you know, all that crap, like Newcastle, Brown Ale. Yeah, ugh, yeah. You know? that was all around. It was all here. And then Prohibition killed it because it, it didn't perform well enough, you know, behind the scenes. So only the big producers could succeed that <clears throat> yeah. were legitimate, right? That were legitimized. And then after that, in order to grow, it had to be more homogenized. It had to taste good for women was another component of the marketing. 
Yep. And I know we're getting off, off track here, but the whole point was this whole prohibition thing. So it kind of ruined beer. Yeah. But then we had the growth of these speakeasies at the same time. We got guys like Al Capone. I mean, he's not just being a gangster, being illegal. Like he's going and making deals and being like, hey, I think these will sell well in my he, restaurant. Let's make a deal. Yeah, he oh. had marketing savvy. It's crazy to me. I just yeah, love that, is, man. It is crazy. So I love that. I wish the yeah. guy was still around. I'd love to get him on the show. Well, that's the stuff. i got to tell you, this is the stuff <laughs> that makes history truly interesting. Yeah. You know, I think school systems do a, a huge disservice to people when it comes to history because they they beat the crap out of you with it and, and make you memorize facts and dates and things like that without any connection. Like you have no real context or connection with this stuff. Right. Right. But when you start really, this is this. And I admit I was one of those kids who just ignored history classes altogether. I did too. Right. Yeah. I just, until I, hated- I became an adult. And then suddenly I was looking into stuff and, and realized this is interesting. Like I didn't know this fact about potato chips or Al Capone or, yeah, I, I think for me it was that I learned I had to just repeat by rote all this random crap, you know, that who yeah. did this and what year was it? That was always so important because that's what you can test. Yeah. What you can't test, what's harder to test, I should say, is the nuance in, of the connections between all these things. You know, why yep. was Andrew Jackson, you know, a terrible human and Trail of Tears, all that stuff? And how did it relate to him and the rough, not the Rough Riders, that was, you know, Teddy Roosevelt and his experience with the Spanish down in Florida. There's all these little in, individual isolated things that are interesting, maybe not to a kid usually. But then you grow up and you put all these things together and you're like, oh, wow. The Napoleon, I mean, Napoleon sold all of the Louisiana purchase to Thomas Jefferson. That's crazy to me. Yeah. You know, well, that's yeah. just, it wasn't just let's just buy it from the land from the landlord. <laughs> right. <laughs> like France owned it, you know. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. It's crazy to me. There's yeah. a lot of little details like that. And and because of those, the details are what, that's what thriller writers in particular mine yeah. for the interesting stories. And it's a little sad. We've talked about this before, how everybody writes X book. So everybody writes the Atlantis book, the Antarctic book, the Mayan book. You know, we all do because those are fascinating. People want to read about it. But yeah. it's a little sad that it's become that formulaic in, in a way because history itself is so full of stories no one knows no one right. would ever have thought about right and and so there's a lot more to mine out there than you know one more nazi book you know and, and i've got a great example of that with mine today uh, i didn't share my my links with you but yeah uh, share your links let's let's transition so people don't transition have to, here speaking of things that we gotta, we gotta wrap up so that i can go get some potato chips all right, <laughs> I got to do that too. Yeah. So speaking of things that make history very interesting, you know, I mentioned this. If you're listening to these yeah. in order, our, our last episode we talked about the seven wonders of the ancient world, and I didn't realize that those were basically pinned or decided upon by mm-hmm. like I think it was a Greek philosopher. I can't remember his Philo, something like that. Yeah. And it was like you know 200 BC or whatever. It was a long time ago. So this wasn't like you know the Smithsonian Institute who we just we heard from the Lay's potato chip stuff got together in like the 50s and decided this. This was a long history of of ancient wonders. And I, I also made the mistake of, I, and I'm going to correct this, the last episode I said, you know, the only one we know is real is the Pyramid of Giza because it's still around. It's the only one of the, the original seven that's still around. We do know that there were other ones uh, that existed, but I wasn't sure how many of the seven. Well, it turns out scientists, or I should say historians, are, are pretty confident that all six out of seven existed. 
mm. with the exception of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. This is one uh, that mm. this one article I'm, I'm, I'm looking at has baffled historians for millennia, it says. And we don't need to get into the whole rant and rave that I'm going to do about, you know, historians being wrong about a lot of shit and just making assumptions based on nothing. <laughs> but but that is part of it. That is part of the, what's happened here is you've got this Greek guy, Philo, who wrote these down and I'm hoping consulted other people and documents and all that, because everything he wrote about, other than the Hanging Gardens not being real, uh, was accurate. There there were great pyramids in Giza right outside of Cairo. There, there was a, a statue of Zeus straddling the harbor or at least on the harbor somewhere, right? So these things did exist, even if he didn't see them personally. But we haven't been able to find the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. We've investigated and we've seen secondhand mentions of the Hanging Gardens, but we haven't got any firsthand accounts of where this thing was. So I gave a brief summary last last show, but the story goes that King Nebuchadnezzar, of course, of Babylon, built this in the 6th century BC. Um, so old. And uh, the story goes that the king's wife, Amethyst, desperately missed her homeland of Media, which was located in the northwestern part of modern day Iran. Um, I believe Babylon would be Iraq now, right? Yeah, something like that. So they're close, but, you know, there's still like a 300 mile, 600 mile difference, something like that between them. So he built this elaborate garden. He's a king, so he can afford it, you know, to give his wife a beautiful memory of home. I'm reading from this article, but to do this, the king constructed a series of waterways to serve as an irrigation system. So think aqueduct way before the Romans did it. <laughs> yeah. Water from nearby rivers were raised high above these gardens so that you could cascade down in a stunning fashion, it says. And of course, any artwork you see, any paintings you see that are renditions of this thing, are it's pretty glamorous. I mean, it's pretty ridiculously cool. It'd be like going into a modern day botanical garden that's built, you know, in, in the terraced form. It's rather than just being a big spread out, you know, pavilion it was uh it was like three or three or four something like concentric rectangles like built on top of each other it was pretty big it's pretty cool the problem is we haven't been able to find it in babylon right and so yeah. i was digging into this a little bit to see what's the deal why is this the one that we can't find I mean, because to me you know that which is most obvious is usually the truth or whatever that quote is and the most obvious thing mm-hmm. is that if all six of these out of seven existed then the seven one probably did too and right. like other things we just didn't know where it was. Like the Sphinx didn't exist until we dug it out of the ground, right? So we just, you know, these things are all myth and legend until we find it. Well, it turns out that a, a woman, she's actually a TV host, but she's a very accomplished historian herself. She's got a show called Secrets of the Dead on PBS. Dr. Stephanie Daly, Daly or Daly, I don't know how to pronounce her name. She believes she knows where it is. Now, she hasn't found it yet because of, you know, current political mm-hmm. climate and, and whatnot in Iran and Iraq, but... She thinks that the Hanging Gardens of Babylon are actually located 300 miles elsewhere in Nineveh. Of course, the biblical town that we've yeah. come to know and love. And the reason she thinks that is really, <coughs> excuse me, it's really quite fascinating. She once again points to history not being perfectly recorded. Of course, that is true. We know that. But that that which is you know most obvious, most simple is usually the obvious explanation. She believes it's in Nineveh because these secondhand accounts were written by Greek historians who had heard from people who had been there. But it turns out when you do some digging into both Babylon and Nineveh's history, there's some really interesting ties. First of all, the I'm trying to find where it was. There were some accounts of what these gardens looked like, and they said that there was like a screw type contraption used, like a big giant, a huge bronze screw that pulled the water from the river and lifted it, you know, to a higher place yeah. to be able to be delivered on. You could just do that with a screw that you know goes up and 
have some kind of walls on it so it holds water, like essentially buckets that just go up. And uh, it could be run by probably even water powered, maybe, or, you know, horses, oxen, whatever. Yeah. That's what's anyway, known as an Archimedes screw, by the an way. An Archimedes screw, yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, guess what? They found one outside of Nineveh and they, uh, they dug it up and they were like, well, we don't know what this bronze screw is for, but that's cool. And that was pretty much it, right? It also turned out that Alexander the Great's army went to Babylon. I was to say Babylon, does say Babylon, and reported seeing magnificent gardens. But historians say, well, you know, his soldiers were prone to exaggeration, so that may not have existed. <laughs> but here's the deal. Babylon, so he says they went to Babylon, but apparently the guy who ran Nineveh, and this is the, number, the name I was trying to find because I couldn't remember the name of the, the king in Nineveh, but apparently he named his his city after or some parts of his city after saying the same streets in Babylon. Like it was the same sort of names and all that. Okay. Yeah. So he's, he kind of stole some of the names. So it could be very easily, you know, misconstrued. You say, oh, secondhand, you know, sources say we went to Babylon, but it could have actually been Nineveh and who would have been the wiser, right? Right. They also found, so this Nineveh is near the modern day Iraq city of Mosul. So not Iran, sorry. But they've uncovered evidence of an extensive aqueduct system that delivered water from the mountains with the inscription on it, Sennacherib, that's the king of Nineveh that I was looking mm-hmm. for, Sennacherib, king of the world. Over a great distance, I had a water course directed to the environs of Nineveh. Um, so that literally say, and then there's some bas-relief art from the royal palace in Nineveh that depicted a lush garden watered by an aqueduct. Unlike the flat surroundings of Babylon, the more rugged topography would have made you know, the logistical challenge of getting the water up there a lot easier. So a lot of stuff uh, going on in this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Know any of this stuff. What'd you say? I said I didn't know any of this stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm glancing through all. all, You sent me three links. So I've kind of been kicking between each of them. And um, yeah, this is is all very fascinating because it implies there's so much to this. It's layered. But there's a layer of technology involved in this that you wouldn't necessarily have thought would have been around at that time. Right. And then the question of origin and sort of the misleading um, names of streets and cities and things like that. There's a, this is, it's ripe. You know what I mean? Yeah. This is cool. Yeah. I mean, I just, I was stumbling over my words because my kid was like talking to me the whole time I was trying to read (laughs) talk at the same time. But, but yeah, I mean, this stuff is, it's like, why would they make all this up? Like, right. why would they make a bas relief in the royal palace that shows an aqueduct feeding a giant, you know, garden system? Yeah. Why? Why would they do that? That just doesn't. That doesn't. If you're gonna produce art, you know, make it mm-hmm. like really pretty. Don't just be like, here's exactly what ha- was here and what it looked yeah. like. You know. So what's in, what's intriguing to me is let's say you're using this as a fulcrum for a story. I can imagine a scenario where someone stumbles across something seemingly unrelated. There was, hey, it turns out that in the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, there was this particular technology or a seed or, you know, something that would be hugely beneficial to humanity, right? Or make someone very rich or whatever the motive ends up being. But uh, they find out it's there. And then on an investigation, you know, they start to discover the, the reason it's never been found is because we've always been looking in the wrong place. Right. Right. So that's yeah. the, that's the, those are the roots of, you know, a really good thriller story, an archaeological right. thriller yeah. story. Cause yeah. now you've got, 
new evidence, quote unquote. And so it changes the direction. And now everyone's seeking out this thing and seeking it in this new location. But there's a twist because it's a war-torn area, right. you know. To get in there is dangerous and to get right. out alive so, is even more. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is – so this is the part <clears throat> that I was looking at earlier that I, I couldn't find. But Sen- Sennacherib is the Assyrian king of Nineveh. Yeah. And I didn't realize this either, but at one point the Assyrians conquered Babylon in 689 BC. So the Assyrians conquered Babylon, but here's what's funny. Nineveh actually was referred to as New Babylon. Okay. So instead of it calling, you know, Babylon New Nineveh, as you might if you're the, you know, Ninevit, Ninevites or whatever, yeah. you conquer a city and the old city becomes New Babylon and Sennacherib even renamed the city gates after those of Babylon's entrances. So when you're Alexander the Great, you know, stomping around later on and your army comes through the gates, you're just going to read what the gates say and be like, well, yeah, yeah, I guess we're in Babylon. This must be a new section they built, you know? Right. Yeah. (laughs) If you think about it, okay. So in our modern age, if technology didn't exist, let's say there was an EMP that wipes out all technology in the United States and a hundred years from now, you've got people roaming the country and they have in their head information from a hundred years ago, but nothing really concrete to connect it to. Right. Someone along the way decided to call Los Angeles, New York. Right. You would not necessarily know the difference. Or you even, know? you know, even a more obvious example would be Paris, Texas is a thing. Uh-huh. And obviously Paris, France is usually what people are talking about. So if you're yeah. around Texas, though, and you say, well, I, I grew up in, I mean, my family's from Paris. I don't know any, where it is or what it's yeah. about. That's an interesting phenomenon that I just assume is limited to texas but who in the world when they say we're going to paris <laughs> is referring to paris texas who who people from paris, have you texas. seen paris texas even people in paris texas aren't going to tell you that they're going uh, to right paris. and right in your backyard you've got little uh little ohio where you've got columbus you've got oh, yeah. uh, cleveland texas yeah, exactly <laughs> yeah. and i'm i'm constantly baffled by that when i say if i say i'm going to i'm going to go to cleveland or whatever like who who actually we, a couple of hours Karen and I were traveling to Paris. We used to go like once a year for a while because her folks were living there. And I'd say to people in a major metropolitan area like Houston, among educated people in the ad agency world and the technology world, and I would say, my wife and I are going to Paris next week. <laughs> and they would say, Texas? <laughs> right <laughs> and that only happens in texas because even, uh, yeah, even, even just arkansas and everyone's yeah we, you mean france we got you mean Fra- everyone assumes france except texas right. assumed they paris they texas a town. town that i'm not sure i've ever even been to but i'm pretty sure it's a small town exactly so, anyway i anyway. digress but but the same you could see where that could happen something like yeah. that you know especially in an era where there where information was limited, you know, and so you are aware that somewhere to the east of us is Babylon, but you don't necessarily know how far east. And even if you did know, the directions were usually inaccurate, unreliable. So it's right. 300 miles east of us and you go 600 miles to uh, Nineveh, then and I'm making this stuff up by the way. Sure. Don't check yeah, me right. on the map, but yeah, right. you know, you would say, ah, oh, well, they were just off by 300 miles because in an, in that era, being off by 300 miles wasn't really 
that. And that even, doesn't even bring diagonals into it. Maybe it is 300 miles east, but it's also 300 miles north. Yeah. And so it's just a, you know, it's like a, whatever the, the uh, hypotenuse would be. It's like 450 miles, right? Door to door. But yeah. no one's really tracking like that because we, we didn't use miles, right? Uh, right. So the I mean, Roman army, about... the uh, Alexandrian army, you know, goes up there and knocks on the door and it literally says New Babylon on the gates. Yeah, yeah. You know, you're not going to think, this is a completely this is different town. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, in American history, we know that the Americas were discovered by somebody who thought he was sailing to India. It's not really that unusual a thing right. in, in right. history. Yeah. So that's, I, just, I thought this was cool. Yeah, that's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. I think this I've is already cool got half a dozen stories that involve the hanging. I know, me too. You know. Yeah. I'm like, I still want, and so this is just like Troy. You know, we, we just assumed Troy was this mythological city written, you know, by, in the Iliad, you know, yeah, and the Odyssey. But, you know, Homer wrote about it, and all of a sudden we found it in the yeah. 90s or something. Right? Oh, they dug it up. And, oh, well, this changes everything. Yeah. <laughs> we it was it's all just a joke, you know. What's remarkable to me is I remember when, I remember an era when, Troy was still the mythical city of Troy. Yeah. And then a month later, it was found. Yeah. I mean, I was in, like in kindergarten or something, but I remember when that happened. They were talking yeah. about... And so, but when you talk to people now about it, it's, oh yeah, Troy. Right. You know, nobody questions its existence now, right. even though just, let's see, what was that? 30 years ago? I don't even remember anymore, but I mean... Many, I, many, I can't many count. My maths are bad. <laughs> but back in my high school era you know right up until i graduated high school troy was still a mythical city right no one yeah. had any confirmation that it, that it was historically real and then boom it's historically real no one even questions it anymore right but you could say yeah, it, I but I, I guarantee you if you start telling people today you know it was a, it's a mythical city there's no proof that it's there right. no one would even question that like suddenly right. it'd be like oh well yeah of course these are a generation well, of people who don't think Helen Keller was real. I was going to say that you got there's a lot of stupidity in the world now. I just watched a, a reel on Facebook because I am also stupid and hate myself. There were people were asked on the street to name three countries that start with the letter F, and okay. people couldn't do it. They were like, I don't know. <laughs> and I was like, Well, France, Finland, Fiji. Yeah. There's only three I can think of, but there's three right there. Is Fiji a country? Fiji is a country. I, I thought Fiji yeah, I was like, Yeah. Okay. Fallujah? Or That's is that with like a PH? I don't know. Fallujah? I don't I, I, sadly, I, I am very weak when it comes to geography. So Fargentina? Uh, Bolivia? America. Brazil? Europe? For instance, you said three countries that start with F. France didn't even come into my head, and we were, we were just talking, talking about, about Paris. France. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, and, yeah, and everyone's good at different stuff, but man, there's never been a time where I've looked around and been like, everyone here is everyone here is dumb. Hey, I'm going to throw in a bonus though, Let's since we're talking bonus. about continents and that sort of thing. Something I learned today that there is because of the shape of the continents, the shape of the continents influenced the cultures that evolved on those continents. Okay. I learned this today. And so, for example, Europe and Asia are wide continents, mm -hmm. okay? And the Americas are, and Africa are tall continents, okay? So the, re and the impact that that has is in Asia and Europe, you had more expansion for agriculture because as you go east to west, the climate doesn't change all that significantly. 
Okay. So you have more opportunity for culture to spread as agriculture spreads. Okay. But in the Americas and in Africa, the continents are tall north to south. And so there was less spread of agriculture because there were only, there are only narrow bands where certain agriculture can take. So the further north or south you go, the less likely it is for, you know, certain crops to hold up. And so that slowed the cultural development in both of those continents. Because okay. you're not going to be growing spices in Cape Horn, right? right. Cape Town, South Africa, I mean. Right. Um, but you are absolutely going to be doing it in Morocco. You know, right. And, and if you have trouble picturing this, I mean, think about oranges in Florida, right? Yeah. And then take those oranges and plant them in Canada. Right. You know, and you're not going to you're not going to see that level of agriculture survive. And so what you had was more isolation of cultures in the Americas and in Africa that did have some development. But if you start looking at technological trends for cultures over the millennia, technology made bigger leaps in Europe and Asia than it did in Africa and the Americas. That's cool. It's fascinating. Yeah. I like that's this. a little bonus stuff that's real for you folks. Yeah. And that's probably too many stuff that's real. I know you're going to be just chomping at the bit for more, but you have yeah. to digest all of this wonderful information first. So we'll let you do that. Go digest. We'll get out of here and uh, digest and, uh, and percolate and all the things, all the food related things we do in our brains. When you get new fascinating information from guys like us, <laughs> how about that? Right. <laughs> Yeah, as always, we uh, appreciate you listening. We will be back next week with some more stuff that's real that you didn't know was real, but also is cool. We'd love to hear from you. If you go to stuffthatsreal.com, you can find where to ping us, and we appreciate being pung. So go ping away, and we will talk to you soon. Ladies and gentlemen, goodbye. Goodbye. Stuff that's real. Looking for a great new thriller? Check out Conundrum Publishing. We publish books that make you think. From mind-bending thrillers to heart-wrenching dramatic action-adventure novels, our books will keep you up all night, turning the pages eager to find out what happens next. So, what are you waiting for? Head over to conundrumpub.com str for three totally free thrillers. You won't be disappointed. Again, three full-length action thrillers totally free at conundrumpub.com slash str.